"'Twas the show before Christmas, and all through the house, nothing could be heard except the film file, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to the film file. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And welcome to this very festive episode. Festive because, well, it's Christmas week and it's festive. <laughs> it's as simple as that. No science. It's more festive than Die Hard. No, let's not get into that debate again. We did this last year. <laughs> uh, did we both agree, though, it's a Christmas film? No, I will never agree that that's a Christmas film until people accept that Iron Man 3 is a Christmas film and Lethal Weapon are a Christmas film, and people never accept that. I agree. No, I do. <laughs> I do. Said at Christmas, all about people trying to get home for Christmas. But yeah, let, let's not get into the debate because it, it turns into like absolute wars. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that every war that has broken out since the 80s has all been because someone says, Die Hard's not a Christmas film. That's it. War's declared. Uh, <laughs> what a week off I had. All my plans, all my things that I wanted to do. And what did I end up doing? Well, I'm 24 hours into Last of Us Part 2 now. <laughs> <laughs> I feel so so responsible. Man, that storytelling's amazing. It's very clever. It can have you hating a character throughout it and then flip the story so that you're playing as her and you start to actually care about her. That is such good storytelling. Yeah, it's really, really smart. And the fact when you're about to brutally murder somebody, you hear them talking about, hey, did you have a good night with James the other night? Yeah. Hanging out. <laughs> at the, Hang on, he's got a family. The small casual bits of dialogue that the NPCs come out with to really humanise them. It's yeah, yeah it, it, it marvelous storytelling. Marvelous. Uh, there has been news as well that apparently is rumors that The Last of Us Part Three is in development. Um, oh, so that's good news. I've got another few years of my life to um, be lost into a game, which I'll inevitably complete this and then start it again on the harder, challenging modes. Because I did exactly the same with the first Last of Us game. That as soon as I finished it, it was start all over again. You'll finish it just in time for the TV series. At this, hopefully. I mean, Kerry did turn around to me earlier and say, like, are you, are you close to the end yet? And I just went, I don't know. I don't think so. I think I'm only in the second act. I don't know where I am. But with games like Last of Us, I'm I'm an explorer. And it's literally like, even though I could get from this point A to point B, it's like, oh, there's an open window over there. I'm going to climb through it and see what's in there. Oh, there's an open window over there. I'm going to climb. I will explore everything, uh, which means that I've popped quite a few of the trophies for collecting things so far. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be doing much trophy gathering on the second run through because I've pretty much done it already. But yeah, I mean, that was my week off that and basically prepping <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, well, I've not finished. Uh, as of recording this, I finish on Tuesday, which came as a bit of a culture shock because in my head, I was pretty certain that we finished on the uh, on the Friday, the 16th. But uh, no, it's on the 20th. Um, uh, everybody else has finished. The family's finished. Kids finished. I've not finished. No. So I've got a lot of last minute stuff to do. I don't finish, as you know. You just carry on the flaming morning. Christmas is the big season. Which we'll be talking about in detail in a little we while. Will. Now, last week, when it came to set it, we didn't get a great response to the Mastodon Challenge last week. Okay. You worried that this week's question might not get much of a grab. You weren't sure about it. You had a couple of questions to pitch forwards. And I said, yeah. now I think that this one will do great. And boy, it's exploded. Um, we've had really? some great oh, responses. Wow. 
Yes. So a quick recap. This week's Mastodon Challenge question was, are there any movies that were adapted from novels that you feel either equaled or improved on the source material? And now I hashtagged this with the relevant things, films, books, movies, so it grabbed everyone from everything. And I think that's what made it work is that there's lovers of books out there. There's lovers of films out there. And this brought them all together to discuss. And we had some stunning answers. MIB gave us Battle Royale and Let the Right One In. Great okay. choices, which they'd literally posted that within half an hour of me actually having sat down and watched Battle Royale with my daughter, introducing her to the film. So I was like, man, totally agree. Absolutely. The, the graphic novel of Battle Royale is good, but the film is so much better. Second film, not so much. Never saw the second one. You're probably best not to. Jaws made quite a few popular entries. Uh, Charles 228203. And Salty Red Popcorn were the first two to jump on there. And Jenny Rig also put Jaws in there. because It's a pot boiler of a book. It is one of those 70s uh, uh, airport books. Yeah, as Salty Red Popcorn said, um, first time I read, I read the book, I was perplexed by the awful potential love triangle shoehorned into the plot. Yeah. And yeah, having read the book, completely on board with that one. Charles 22A203 also gave The Godfather. Yeah. Ooh. I can I've never read the book. See that. And Jenny Rig. Also popped in The Exorcist and Psycho. Mm, yeah, good good choices. I've never read either. Now, a debatable one. Ishmael Lasting put forward The Shining. Mm, very debatable. Um, yeah. Both very, very good in their own right. Yeah, neither are bad. It's, I, I think this is one of them where you can, if you're happy to embrace the changes that were made, you can appreciate both of them yeah. equally. I do think that the book, for me, pips the film. It just yes. slightly pips the film, but only slightly. But it is worth noting that, you know, the film by Kubrick is definitely better than the miniseries that Stephen King insisted was going to be more faithful and loyal. So I think we should accept that The Shining is absolutely fantastic as a film. And we pointed out that Doctor Sleep is a better film than it is a book. Yeah, yeah, um, which it's a better film than the book because it draws upon aspects of both film. book and film of The Shining yeah. and merges them together in a beautiful way. Um, Goat Walker felt the opposite way, saw The Shining, which was fantastic, then read the book and never been more scared reading a book and thought the film wasn't actually a patch on the book. So, yeah, I, can't, I agree with you, but, you know, still admitting that the film was fantastic at the same time. I think it's one of them that it's hard to dislike the film, even if you love the book more. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Now, Kimberly put forward Daywatch and Nightwatch. And now, I've I've loved the films. I love both the films. I particularly loved the cinematic releases of both the films that had fun with the way that the subtitles interacted with the environments around it. I've never read the books, even though I've had, I think I've got them on my bookshelf upstairs, and there are three books in the series. Um, I'll get round to them. I've now, I've now shortlisted them onto my like reading list because, you know, Kimberly says that the books are phenomenal, but does prefer the films over the books. <laughs> Optimisty gave Jaws again, but also put um, Requiem, Requiem for a Dream. Uh, only seen the film, only, as I can't really speak about the book. Just one that hit me while we were talking was the uh, right stuff, the movie, and the right stuff, the book. And, yeah. Uh, well, the book's a, a bit of a misnomer, but uh, Thomas Wolfe. And the, the film is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, Robot Beat put forward, as well as Fight Club, which was my answer, uh, also put forward 2001 A Space Odyssey, although technically the book and movie were written at the same time. Yeah. So the, the kind of two edges of the same coin. 
Mev's Mats gave us a Clockwork Orange. Never read the book. Tried to. It's written in a, in a kind of uh, slang speak, which is really yeah. difficult to get your head into. Uh, one of the things that made it classic. But yeah, I think I prefer the film. Jenny Rigg also th- then threw in Mask of the Red Death and The Devil Rides Out. Ooh, big Poe fan. Uh, I've never been a big Dennis Wheatley fan, so I can't really talk about how good the book is, but the film is my favourite Hammer film. Now, Fasilies well and truly threw themselves into this one. Get ready for this huge list. Okay. Give me the edited highlights. Jaws, The Exorcist, The Godfather, The Original Planet of the Apes. Yeah, definitely. From, From Russia with Love. I mean, with the Bond films, most of them just take the name and don't really take the plot. So I think it goes without saying that generally the films are going to be better. Um, The Corman, Mask of Red Death, uh, 2001, Life Force, Devil Rides Out. So a few repetitions of what other people put in. Psycho, Uh The Third Man, the Coen Brothers version of True Grit. Yep. Not only is it better than the source material, it's better than the first adaptation. Yeah. Tempted to add Moonraker, but not sure it counts as it only really shares the name with. Yeah, it's about as much as you're going to get. Marathon Man. Marathon Man. Ooh, no, I, I, ooh, tough call that one because I did like the book an awful lot and uh, I love the film. See them as cousins. Yeah. Uh, Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know that I don't love Princess Bride, so. I can't argue one way or the other on this one, but I think there's a, so much love for the film that the book's kind of been forgotten that it ever existed. Uh, Vertigo, Night of the Hunter. Hmm, interesting. Good choice. And then threw in, because, you know, once you've, once you've already like rattled off the whole of cinematic history, why not also add in Jason and the Argonauts, you know, basically any adaptations of Greek mythos. <laughs> <laughs> Susperia, Big Sleep, Cat People. Popeye, I've got some... I, I was well pleased when I saw that there was mention of Popeye in there. We love Popeye. I love that Robin Williams film. Night of the Hunter, The Limey, Gods and Monsters, Nosferatu, Fury Road, Plague of the Zombies, Manchurian Candidate, The Medusa Touch, Silent Running, Shining, Moby Dick, Jaws again, and Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150. <laughs> I, I do have love for that. Uh, I would chuck in Superman the movie because it was better than the comics up until that point. Thassilis then rounded off with another tweet just saying, well, another toot, as they're called, um, and Superman the movie. I'll leave it at that. So yeah. you've you've complete, in complete agreement there. And yeah, I am the same. Superman the movie is so much better than what the comics were, particularly at that point in time. Yeah. Um, great origin story. But, you know, stunning result responses to it. It's great to see, you know, Cinema Cinema Power Disco, who's another one who's migrated over from the uh, Bird app. Stand by me. Yep, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, and yeah. one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yep, I agree Ooh, on that choice. one. Uh, Lavi O'Brien agreed with Jaws and also threw in Starship Troopers. I've never read Starship Troopers, but I've heard there is more a political allegory yeah. than Starship Troopers, which is a gung ho action film with satire. I'm also amazed at how many of these books I've actually read. And uh, Laura SSM popped in East of Eden. Although it only oh. takes the last part of Steinbeck's book, it equals it. It can't improve on it because it's impossible to. I am a massive James Dean fan and uh, East of Eden I do have problems with. Never read it, but what this has ended up resulting in because of all these responses and so many things getting thrown out is not only have I now added a load of films onto the list that I want to watch, my lineup of books that I need to get round to reading has just <laughs> expanded exponentially. So you I now need, need... another week off without video games. Yes. 
So uh, next time I have a week off, if someone can come around and cut my electricity so that I've got a chance to catch up on all these things, this will be great. But yeah, great response. Thank you for all the responses to everyone out there. Um, but it shows that you were worried that maybe doing a books to film question wouldn't excite people. It definitely and did. And there was a lot of engagement good. going on. Well, this week's Mastodon Challenge is easy. It's Christmas. What's your go-to Christmas film? We've talked about the films before that are your go-to Christmas films that aren't festive. But what's your yeah. go-to festive film? Right. I will throw that one out. And obviously, because uh, we're taking a couple of weeks of a little break on the regular episodes, it'll be in the new year that we'll reveal what everyone should be tuning into next December based on everyone's opinions. Fantastic. So what have we got on our festive show this week? Well, of course, we'll have all the news, all the box office. And this week's deep dive is a little bit different. Grab your magic marker because we are doing the Radio Times Christmas Film Challenge. Play <laughs> along at home. We've got reviews of... Avatar Way of Water, which both me and Lee have seen. Uh, I've also seen The Amazing Morris on Sky Movies. Uh, and I'm also going to throw in two festive treats. I say treats sarcastically. Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, the new animated offering from Netflix, and Christmas Bloody Christmas, the new horror offering on Shudder. I'm going to give you a very quick roundup of Barbarian that landed on Disney Plus this week. But before any of that, yes, of course, it's this week's festive news. <laughs> And as ever, let's kick off with the box office. And of course, all eyes are on Avatar Way of Water. And so it's finally here. Avatar The Way of Water has struck the box office and obviously gone straight to the top in both the UK and the US. In the US, the figures are looking like this for the weekend. Avatar Way of Water took 134.1 million over its opening weekend. It's down on what the projections of 150 to 170 were. Black Panther Wakanda Forever, 5.3 million. Violent Night, 5.1 million in third place. Strange World, 2.2 million. And then The Menu, rounding off the top five with 1.6 million. Here in the UK, Avatar opened really well with 11.2 million pounds, taking first place. Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical took 1.3 million. Black Panther Wakanda Forever, 377,000. Violent Night, 352,000. And Strange World, 193,000, taking fifth place. Now, Way of Water was anticipated to be opening around about 500 million worldwide on this opening weekend. It finished around about 430 million, which is still a strong opening. However, given reports that it needs to make between 1.5 and 2 billion in order to be considered profitable, it's not a very strong start. Although it is worth noting that the first Avatar also didn't open very strongly, but the drop-off week on week was very, very low. On its second week, it only dropped off about 2%. It stayed stable for the first three weeks and just continued to grow an audience over time. Will Way of Water follow suit or will it go the way of most other blockbusters this year, in which case we'll see a 60% drop-off next week? We'll find out over time. When we return for our regular shows in the new year, we'll obviously know how well Avatar is performing compared to its predecessor and whether it's suffered the fate of all the other blockbusters this year with a huge drop-off or whether it has shown that James Cameron should never be disregarded. As we said before, we'll be giving you our review later on in the show. But 
Andy, I, I know you've got some news for us, but I've got to mention this. The Barbie teaser. <laughs> I've got that in my notes. Of course, I've got that in my notes. I have been waiting for some glimpse of the Barbie trailer. And we still don't know exactly what they're going to be doing with this film. But I think they've set the tone is going to be a little jokey and a little bit of satire. What a great trailer. And the Kubrick estate were very happy with it. They messaged out, the Kubrick estate messaged out on socials. They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Even Barbie is a Kubrick fan. That teaser with its 2001-esque kids with dolls and then like instead of a monolith, it's the Barbie legs that they touch and then they start smashing the dolls and then throws one up in the air. It was a perfect bit of imitation. Yeah. And it, I, I, I put it on for the guys in the office at work because I was like, the Barbie trailer's landed, guys. And they were looking at me like, what are you on about? And then I played it, and all of us were just like, I'm in. <laughs> I'm definitely in for that. I thought I, to, I thought it looked great, and I uh, <laughs> I instantly thought of you when I watched it. Uh, I thought, <laughs> this is going to land. There was also the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse trailer, which landed this week as well. Oh, man, you could go through that frame by frame and, and just like have fanboy moments left, right, and centre. Yeah. It's a proper spot the spider character from the myriad of comics that have existed throughout my timeline uh yeah i mean it's gonna be more of the same fun it looks energetic it looks chaotic and it looks like they're having so much fun with different art styles as well i can't wait me too it looked it looked awesome uh let's stay in comics for a little while and the news about henry cavill well there's a lot of things going on with warner brothers discovery this week again now we know that i'm going to start off before we get onto the cavill news Start off with the, the fact that Warner Brothers Discovery over this past year had been writing off content. So far, they've written off about a billion dollars worth of content. That's either through the cancellation of projects, famously the Batgirl project, or removing stuff off the HBO Max streaming service completely. They, they don't intend to stop this at any point in time. The organization has filed a securities write-off and impairment related to development costs of between 2.8 and 3.5 billion after initial estimates that it would be 2 to 2.5, and the total pre-tax restructuring and impairment charges will be between 4.1 and 5.3 billion. They're expecting to keep these recouping costs going through up until the end of 2024, which suggests even more cost-cutting is to come. And some of this will likely be the continual cutting of content from their own streaming services to allow them to obtain licensing costs from other streamers, as well as the upcoming merger of the HBO Max and Discovery Plus services. And you'll have noticed that they've gone very quiet on the idea of HBO Max being released worldwide at the same time. Now, some of the rest will likely be cutting back on film budgets, which leads to smaller names in key roles, which is possibly one of the reasons why Cavill will not be seeing his time as Superman again. Okay. Uh, we did, did report that... Uh... James Gunn wanted to make Superman the cornerstone of the DC universe. And we, we spoke about that last week. Yes. Well, James Gunn's revealed that there's a new Superman script. He sat with Cavill this week. We're not going to get a lot of news of what the projects going forwards are until after the new year. He said that after the new year, they'll reveal a lot more because they've got to talk to the people involved at the moment. They've got to break bad news and good news to the individuals rather than just posting it on socials. James Gunn's response to it is that in the initial stages, our story will be focusing on an earlier part of Superman's life. So the character will not be played by Henry Cavill. But we have just had a great meeting with Henry. We're big fans. We've talked about a number of exciting possibilities to work together in the future. So while Gunn is working on a new Superman script himself, 
which he probably won't direct this one. He's just writing the start, the initial draft of the script. It's a recasting because it's to be set during his early years. Now, a load of the fans online would be like, oh, we don't want Smallville. It's like, well, it's a good job that he's clarified that it's not going to be that. It's going to be his early days in Metropolis as an investigative reporter and his first interactions with everyone in that environment. So it's not Smallville. So stop getting negative about it. And Smallville wasn't that bad. So stop moaning. <laughs> Tell him. Now, whilst those tweets hint that the door's open, Cavill's own social media response suggested otherwise citing that he was told in October to go public with his return, was promised to be part of the DCU plans only for it to be taken away. There's now a lot of backlash online. There's a lot of arguing going on. Some people say, okay, let's wait and see how this pans out. Let's see, wait, wait and see what James Gunn's and Saffron's final plans are for the five-year structure of DC. Whilst everyone else is saying, uh, they should bring back Zack Snyder. Because, of course, they are saying that. Because, of course, the Snyder cult are saying that they're going to boycott DC. This is the same Snyder cult who said three years ago that they were boycotting DC. So I'm assuming they've already boycotted it. So it's not going to make any difference. I don't know. But the new Superman film, which will focus on Clark Kent's time as a young reporter in Metropolis, director's not set. Some have suggested that Affleck may take the gig. And Gunn has admitted that he'd love to find a project for Ben to direct. But it needs to be the right one for him. Okay. That's interesting. We, are, we also know that the J.G. Abrams to Nessie Coates Superman project is still in development. It's still in active development. So that wasn't one of the ones that got canned and sidelined. Now, it's not all bad news for Cavill, though, because this must have been bubbling away for quite some time. We know that Henry Cavill is a big nerd. He is proud of being one of the kings of the nerds. He loves his tabletop gaming. He loves his video games. This is why he gets involved in projects such as like comic book movies and um, video game movies. Well, now he's set to head up an Amazon TV series adaptation of the Warhammer 40K franchise, which seems like a perfect fit for Cavill's nerdism, but also stature and presence as an actor within that kind of framework. This is a proper joy to see that he's linked to a project like this because it gives me a lot of confidence that it'll be delivered well. Uh, having someone involved in it is a huge fan. They generally wouldn't get involved unless they saw that the material was getting adapted in the right way. So I'm very optimistic because we know that he left the Witcher series after the third season yeah. because he was getting he was getting a bit disgruntled about the direction the series was planning to go. And it was moving far too much away from the source materials for his like. So he's very much, a, if I'm involved in something that I'm passionate about, it needs to be faithful and loyal. Um, I know that some people have said that he he left the Witcher series to get the Superman role again. Really? So he left a whole series that he was getting paid for, for something that he would have only been making a film three years down the line. It's not how it works, mate. <laughs> he had other things lined up, like this Warhammer one. This has clearly been bubbling away in the background for quite some time. Cavill's freed up from a few different things. He can do this, and maybe, just maybe, the MCU will poach him for that long, long-wanted um, Brian Braddock role. Let's be honest. If he's going to play anything in the MCU, it needs to be Captain Britain. Yeah, and we're still waiting for him to do the Highlander reboot that we mentioned ooh, yep. months ago, months ago. Yep. His own words, for 30 years, I've dreamt of seeing a Warhammer universe in live action. Having a home like Amazon will give us the freedom to be true to the massive scope of Warhammer. To all you Warhammer fans out there, I promise to respect this IP that we love. I promise to bring you something familiar, and I endeavour to bring you something fantastic that is, as of yet, unseen. So staying in the world of DC, Patty Jenkins, she says she never walked away from Wonder Woman 3. There's a lot of to and fro in arguments, arguments at the moment as to what's actually gone on, because both parties are arguing completely different points here. 
And it's now getting hard to work out who's telling the truth and who's just trying to save face. I don't think it's going to be the last we see of it. I mean, she she said that, yeah, she didn't walk away. Uh, she was willing to listen to feedback. She was happy to change things, but she was kicked. But the other reports say, well, no, um, she didn't want to listen to feedback. She got snotty and she stormed off. I don't think we'll ever get to the root of it. This is just literally both parties have, are going to tell their own stories and we will never know the truth. Yeah. Cavill and Gaddo's cameos for The Flash, which had reportedly been completed and now expected to be edited out of that film prior to its release next year. That's a shame because last week we still mentioned that there could be a possibility that Gal Gadot could appear in Wonder Woman 3 if uh, Patty Jenkins wasn't on board. While Warner Brothers are also keeping costs low, Aquaman 2 has gone over budget. Prior to Gunn and Saffron taking over, Pam Abdi had to tell director James Wan to strip back his reshoot budget because it had already gone over the plans $205 million. Uh, this would further suggest that no further tweaks will be made to bring this entry into line with Gunn and Saffron's future plans, as that would push the cost higher. And it suggests, once again, that this could be the last outing for this character in this form. It looks like what we might get revealed as the future of it is the plans to sever any connections to the, well, rather toxic Snyderverse, and thus signal that, despite their fandom's claims that Zack Snyder will come back, there won't ever be a return for it. The problem that they've had is when they released Zack Snyder's Justice League, that made the fandom go, we've won, he's coming back, now he needs to finish this story. They created this problem. Cavill's basically been booted out because the fan base became annoying, and it's become too problematic to keep any connections to Snyder's universe. There's also been rumours that Matt Reeves as Batman will merge into the future DCU. That has been debunked by Gunn and Saffron. Yeah, it doesn't have to happen. And, and as we've said before, uh, we think it works best with the, the separation of all the ideas. Yeah, Gunn took to Twitter to deny the report and did so in a classy way, saying, There's a, there are a few reporters I love more than at Adam Bravery. Truly a good guy. But in this case, he needs to get a new source, as this is entirely untrue. And then Matt Reeves followed that tweet up saying, the source I'm really liking on this is Mr. James Gunn. So they, they've debunked the rumours and there's going to be a lot more rumours over this next few weeks. And we're going to have to take, like we said last week, a lot of them with a pinch of salt because it is all speculation and buzz. And everyone knows that if they say, I'm an insider, I know this, they can get front page news at the moment. Uh, as for the likelihood of Black Adam returning to the screen, with the film failing to meet expectations. Can't see it. Magic Oak Ball says, not much chance. Well, it was report reported this week, and it's worth saying that The Rock has denied ever following these accounts. The Rock unfollowed the Black Adam account and the Warner Brothers Discovery account on social media this week. Read into that what you like. Now, I know that The Rock says, I, I was never following them. I think you were, mate, because you retweeted quite a lot. <laughs> this is an example of... Um, He's trying to save face because everything that he was bigging up before Black Adam came out, he's the future of the DC and he was going to bring, and he brought Superman back to the screen. And rah, he's now finding out that, guess what, mate? You're not because your film wasn't a success and you're possibly not going to be part of it going forwards. And there's a bit of a spat going on between some DCU cast members and The Rock and Warner Brothers Discovery at the moment. It's a mess out there on social media. And it's not just Twitter now. Instagram's got, got plagued by it as well with this war. The whole thing is in upheaval. The sooner Gunn and Saffron revealed their actual plans, the better. Because at the moment, everything is just everyone spitting venom at each other and everyone trying to pass the blame to someone else. It's like a bunch of mean girls 
And talking of which, Mean Girls, the musical movie, <laughs> has cast Angoria Rice and Alulil Cravelo uh, as part of their cast. That was probably the best segue of the year. I think I'll, I'll take that award. Are you proud of that one? There you go. You can have you can have the gong for this year for that one. Yep. I'll be honest. I've only seen Mean Girls about twice. It's a film that I, I kind of remember enjoying it, but I've never really loved it. And I'm not really too sold on the idea of a musical, but we'll see. Uh, Tina Fey's original back in 2004 was uh, was a smart movie. I, I wasn't clearly wasn't the target audience, but it was a smart film. Uh, Tina Fey's a smart writer. Um, over to the MCU. Deadpool 3 will be very R-rated, according to Sean Levy. We are writing, rewriting, developing, prepping Deadpool every day now. It's such a blast to laugh every day. It's so delicious to hear and write and come up with these scenes where people are just talking foul. And the violence is in your face and hardcore. It's very much a Deadpool movie. And it has Logan in it. And it has Wolverine in it. It's too fun. I'm having so much fun. And I haven't even hit the shooting floor yet. Seems like Sean Levy's having a great time here. Uh, it sounds like, as he said, it will be rude and violent. And it will be uh, a return to form for Deadpool. I wasn't big on Deadpool 2. Uh, I felt a little bit jaded by it, but I'm looking forward to this. And I think uh, Sean Levy and, of course, uh, Ryan Reynolds work. They work well together. They work well together. They worked together before. Uh, it's a good relationship and, and clearly a, a relationship which means that they can throw in a ton of ideas. Uh, shooting is expected to start around May next year for a November 2024 release on that. John Krasinski probably won't be back as Reed Richards. Uh, in his words, there aren't any discussions at all. The only discussion I had was actually in the second to last week of Jack Ryan. Kevin Feige called and said, would you ever fly to LA and play in our sandbox for a day? I was honoured to do it. I flew right out from Budapest where we wrapped and went straight to the Doctor Strange set. I'm a big fan of all these characters in that world. So to get to play in that sandbox for one day was a real thrill. But it's worth noting that whenever someone says that there's been no conversations or discussions about them being cast in the Marvel thing, we've learned to not believe them. Yeah. Because... It Everyone who's ever been cast has always denied their casting right up until the official reveal, even though it's been revealed well in advance. So we've heard this tale of denial so many times. That So that's uh, John Krasinski as Reed Richards then, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah who knows? <laughs> who actually knows? Well, Feige knows. Feige knows. He knows everything. Uh, the TV series Echo is looking to be delayed about six months or more. Okay. Showrunner Marion Dairy. Um, was asked when fans could expect it this week and said December next year. Now, the series has already wrapped filming, which suggests, which would have suggested maybe an early summer release. But this probably links in with the recent rethinking at Marvel over their plans and spacing out their projects a little more. So it might be that we're not going to be swamped with a deluge of content on the streamer going forwards. Uh, for those who can't remember, Echo features the return of Aliqua Cox as Maya Lopez, the deaf Native American woman able to mimic any opponent's fighting style perfectly. And the Echo series is expected to work as a lead-in to the Daredevil Born Again series in 2024. We've been mentioning this over the last few weeks, and that's the ever-growing cast list for the John Wick spin-off Ballerina. And it seems as though The Walking Dead's Norman Reedus is going to join the cast. After surviving a zombie-infested world, can he survive until the end of Ballerina? Looking forward to this one. Yeah, they're stacking the cast pretty nicely now with a good range of people. But this is what we can come to expect from basically the John Wick franchise. Because every John Wick film has thrown in more names each time to make you go, oh, wow, can't wait. So, yeah, I've got confidence that if any universe can get spun off, 
to give us alternate viewpoints. It's the John Wick universe. Yeah. Forget your MCU. The John Wick U is uh, what I'm after. You mentioned Jason Momoa. Well, you mentioned Aquaman earlier. Uh, but he and John Senna are to star in the action comedy Killer Vacation. It's all we know at this stage is it's an action comedy. Uh, and it's written by Brian and Mark Gunn. And apparently Senna and Momoa enjoyed working with each other so much on Fast X that they wanted to find something else to work on. And this is it. Both of them have a great charisma on screen. I thought Senna was great in Peacemaker. I really oh, he did. Marvellous. He, he not only like had a good presence, but he also had a good emotional core throughout it. It delivered a lot more than what I expected that series to deliver. Uh, and Momoa, it, I, I always find engaging. He always looks like he's having fun in everything that he does, and it can, it carries well in the action films that he does. And an action comedy seems perfectly suited for these two to buddy up. Donald Glover appears to be attached to produce a Spider-Man spin-off. Yeah, with Miles Murphy, the son of Eddie Murphy, set to write, and it's yeah. set around a Spidey villain because, of course, it is because that's all that Sony are tapping into at the moment. And no, it's not the one that seems obvious given his uh, cameo in the Spider-Man films. No, it's time for the world to get Hypno Hustler. Hypno Hustler. Hypno Hustler. Hypno Hustler. Everyone out there is probably sat thinking, what? Who's Hypno Hustler? Created by Rocket Raccoon creator Bill Mantlo. Don't let that name make you think that this is anything good. Um, Hypno Hustler is the leader of a group called the Mercy Killers who uses hypnotism on audiences to rob them and regularly features into top 10 lists of worst comic book villains of all time. That's not going to stop Sony. Oh, no, sir. That's not. It's ridiculous. It's strange with Sony at the moment because whilst on the animation side of it, they're getting us all excited with the Spider-Verse films and getting it all right. With the live action ones, I, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, it's throwing everything into a bag and seeing what they can pull out. Why are we not getting Donald Glover as Prowler? Why is that not happening? Why are we getting him as Hypno Hustler, a Z-grade villain, which nobody either remembers or those who do desperately want to forget the comics they read, which had him featuring? I genuinely don't get what's going on with Sony. It's like they clearly want to lose the franchise. They clearly want to lose money so that Marvel can just go, look, just give us the whole thing back. Just, just we'll take control of it now. Yeah, well, perhaps it's a, perhaps it's a um, sale job. We'll just sell it. <laughs> Get it down to such a point where it's untouchable and they'll just go, oh, we sell it's yours. Meanwhile, on the flip side, uh, moving away from Marvel. Now, Netflix last year had a triple bill of horrors based on the Goosebumps books, Fear Street. It was 1994, 1978 and 1666. Well, Watcher director Chloe Acuno has been attached to direct a fourth Fear Street film for Netflix. And there's no details as of yet whether any of the cast or characters will return or whether it's going to be just a standalone entry set alongside, set in another time period, or will it be a direct tie-in? But the director of the trilogy, Lee Janiak, hasn't been confirmed to be returning in any role as of yet, not even as producer. There's enough Goosebumps books out there for them to draw from and draw inspiration from, and the Fear Street series of books has enough material in there that they can make something fresh. But that was a cracking trilogy, and it was the yeah, way right, they we released it as well that they released it serialised over three weeks, that you had something to look forward to and you got to the end of it and you had to think and talk about it. Water cooler kind of releasing for a film trilogy. It was marvellous. And you had that 
ability to choose your favorite episode because you thought, oh, I know that word better than that, yeah. one, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think you and I disagreed with one that I liked and you liked, and, and that's that was great. That's how it should uh, uh, should work. So we know that this Christmas on Netflix, uh, Ben wore blank in the shape of Ryan Johnson's sequel, Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery lands. But Craig also has his eyes on a potential future film, signing up to star with Luca Guagnino in an adaptation of William S. Burroughs' Queer. Yes, uh, this is the story about a heroin-starved uh, queer in Mexico City, an adaptation of a William S. Burroughs novel. Now, William S. Burroughs novels are very provocative yeah. and generally considered pretty much impossible to adapt. And when they've been adapted, they've been adapted marvellously by filmmakers who break boundaries, basically. We're talking Cronenberg, who's adapted previously the unfilmable and unadaptable Naked Lunch. And that ranks as a film that I am desperate to deep dive at some point because I am desperate to re-explore and have my head messed up with that film again. I don't know. I've not read the novel of Queer, so I don't know where it goes, but hopefully they've got the right director. And it is the director of Bones and All, which yeah. got a very mixed response from audiences over this past month. So I, I think it might be the right kind of director. Uh, what we know about the book is it's considered a quasi-sequel to Burroughs' earlier novel, Junkie, uh, which was published in 1953. Even though reportedly Queer was written between 51 and 53, it wasn't published until 1985. Matthew Lillard and Josh Hutcherson are set to star in The Five Night at Freddy's for Blumhouse and Stryker. This has been talked about for ages. Yeah, we mentioned it earlier this year. And we, we, we were concerned that maybe that Nicolas Cage film where he, it has exactly the same plot has beaten it to the punch. As long along with a few other films of a similar ilk about animatronic creatures that come to life at night and cause terror. Um, Emma Tammy, who directed The Wind, is going to direct this film, which is based on the very popular video game series. But it's Jim Henson's Creature Shop who are bringing the animat animatronics to life for this one. And that gets me excited. If anyone could do animatronics right, and for this kind of cutesy animatronics that are actually dark and terrorizing at the same time, it's Jim Henson's Creature Workshop. Uh, for those who don't know the games, the story of it will see a night shift security guard at the family-friendly Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Place find out that the giant animatronic fun characters come to life at night and move when not watched. Um, we've also got Twisters, the long-awaited um, sequel to Twister. The film that nobody enjoyed that much the first time round, and the never-promised sequel looks like it's got a sequel. Yeah, Lee Isaac Chung is in negotiations to direct. Uh, Chung directed the critically acclaimed Minari. Uh, the 1996 original Twister starred Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton, who were playing a separated storm-chasing couple who are forced together again to chase the storm of the century in Oklahoma. Mark L. Smith, who wrote The Revenant, is penning this sequel with the aim to bring Helen Hunt's character back alongside a lead character, which will be her daughter she had with Paxton's character a young woman who is as fascinated by storms as her parents were. It sounds like it's just going to deliver more of the same. Uh, it was a so-so film. It was great for Bill yeah. Paxton. That was, the, that was the winning aspect of it. It was um, visually great, it, but it, there just wasn't anything there in the story. And that's it for, well, the news for this year, uh, until we're back in the new year. But sadly, we have to end 
with some sad news. And that is that composer Angelo Badalamenti has died at the age of 85. And if you don't recognise his name, then you would certainly recognise his scores, mostly for the work he did with David Lynch. Uh, he scored Twin Peaks. He scored the film Blue Velvet, uh, writing the feature song Mysteries of Love with Lynch. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. How much further away can you get from Blue Velvet to National Lampoon's <laughs> Christmas Vacation? City of Lost Children, Arlington Road, The Beach, a very long engagement. Cabin Fever, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. But it's probably his work with David Lynch, which will always stand out. And especially the evocative theme for Twin Peaks. Yes, all of his work over Twin Peaks, the series, and then Firewalk With Me, and then the Twin Peaks, the return series in recent years, has always been enticing, creative, haunting, and perilous at times. His score for Firewalk With Me film, I own the double vinyl of that, and it's a beautiful... I've always been fascinated by it, the melds of different musical styles that he put into it. He was a very creative composer, and I think that's why he worked so well with Lynch, because, you know, Mulholland Drive was another one that he did. Uh, yeah, pretty much he anything that Lynch did, he was the perfect composer for, because he kind of, like, broke out to the normal boundaries of what was expected for the soundtrack and a theme tune and delivered something something sensual and evocative which you can't say can't say more of david lynch than that but yeah it again for me it is his work with jean pierre junet on like things like city of lost children and um, very long engagements that i also recognized his his musical stylings for it's a sad loss but there's left but he did leave a legacy of some absolutely awesome work and that's it for the news for this year <laughs> Whether you've made it to the nice list or sadly you're on the naughty list, it doesn't matter here at The Film File because all we want you to do is, if you haven't done so, is subscribe to the podcast. Make our Christmas. Make our Christmas by heading over to your favourite podcast platform. Search for The Film File, hit that subscription button and become part of The Film File family and be on the nice list for the rest of your lives. And remember... Leave a like and also feel free to get in touch because you can do so over this festive period by doing simply one of these things. Head on over to social media platforms. Look for Film File UK. Follow us over there. Uh, you can email us directly, podcast at filmfile.uk. Any thoughts, suggestions, roundups of the year, anything you want us to look at in 2023. We'll start, we need to start planning out what we're going to talk about deep dive-wise week on week. So if you've got anything that you really want us to do, Stephen, please, we will get round to Lovely Bones. You don't have to email me again. Just send us that email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. You can catch us on No Barriers Radio for the radio version of The Film File. That's every Thursday, 8 o'clock, No Barriers Radio. And that's nobarriersradio.com. And now it's time for a very special deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. So, for this week's deep dive, if you are of a certain age, you will have the same childhood memories of probably Andy and I, millions of other people, in which that special time of year where you would run out a couple of quid in your hand to your nearest news agents and pick up the Christmas edition of the Radio Times. And if you're that little bit older, you would have got the Radio Times and the TV Times because <laughs> they 
They were like that back then. So to carry on that tradition, Andy and I have done so. We took our pocket money in our grubby little hands, headed to our local news agents and picked up, for your delectation, the Radio Times. And when you get it home, there's only one thing you could do, and that was circle what you were going to watch with a big felt-tip pen. And Christmas would start just then. And we're doing the same this week on The Film File. Yeah, it's something which, you know, in this day and age of streaming, when you can get everything on demand, I mean, even the things that show on BBC and ITV, they have the catch-up on demand channels. So you don't really need to stick to certain times. But it's always stuck with me that over the Christmas period, you plan out certain times a day that you're going to watch certain things. If something's on terrestrial TV at a certain time, you want to watch it. And that's something that I think is ingrained into our British culture as well. Um, The fact that the Radio Times and TV Times still put out these Christmas specials each year shows that there's still a demand for these people with marker pens circling things. And it used to be a case of you'd circle what you're watching and what you're going to record because there was always something overlapping. So what we're doing is we're going to look from Christmas Eve onwards through to the 2nd of January and pick out the top picks of films, not on the streaming services, but on the TV stations, because there's loads more on the streaming services. We know that. These are the ones that if you don't have access to Sky, you don't have access to streaming services, you can enjoy these films. So let's start with Christmas Eve, shall we? I've spotted on Christmas Eve a reason why I need to phone in sick and not go into work. Is it Channel 4 at one twenty-five? Well, yes, obviously. Channel 4 at one twenty-five on Christmas Eve. It's a wonderful life. It's a festive tradition for me to watch this. And of course, even though I've got it on DVD and I've got it on Blu-ray, Inevitably, if I'm sat in front of the TV and it's due on, I will tune in and watch it as it plays. Uh, But also on Channel 5 at 11.30am is, and we spoke about it only a few weeks ago, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, the 1951 Alistair Sim starring perfect version of the tale. Yeah, we did talk about it and we said that it is absolutely classic in every way. Captures the Dickens story perfectly. It's fairly dark and and so much so that when Scrooge goes through his transformation, you really feel the joy of that transformation. ITV4 at 11.40am has one of your favourite films, if not your favourite film of all time. Yes, notice this, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. It is my favourite all-time film. I had a significant birthday several decades ago, it feels like. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I showed it to uh, friends and family and it went down, uh, went down a treat. Um, other things to watch out for are uh, Chariots of Fire, which is still a particular brilliant film. Not particularly very festive, but that's on BBC Two at 4.55. And if you've not seen it, it's, it's well worth giving it a go. For more more recent releases, you've got the Family Entertainment on BBC One at 3pm on Christmas Eve, Detective Pikachu. I had a lot of fun with this. Yeah, I remember. It it taps into the video game aspects beautifully. There's loads of nods and references for fans of uh, particularly the Pokemon video game franchise. But also it has the voice of Ryan Reynolds in there. So, of course, I I loved it. And then Film 4 in the evening at 11.35 has the marvellous dark comedy horror ready or not oh, which i didn't see so i'll be uh i'll be watching that this time so circle that at your magazine and get yourself tuning into that for a nice bit of pre-christmas day treat uh, i've got to mention because 
since being a kid, I love a good ghost story at Christmas. And Mark Gattis and I seem to have something in common because so does he. And he has done uh, another M.R. James adaptation, Count Magnus. Um, that goes out on the 23rd. It should go out on Christmas Eve just to follow uh, tradition. But I, I do love a good Christmas ghost story. Yeah, that'll be BBC Two, Friday, December the 23rd at 10pm. And then it'll become available on iPlayer for people to stream. So what about the big day? The big day is packed with the usual that you expect. Now, whilst I'm, I'm sure that what used to be the Queen's speech, which is now the King's speech, will get more people tuning in this year than what it's had in recent years for obvious reasons. Yeah. I still don't care that much about it. <laughs> And so I will be tuned into Channel 4 at 1.50pm when The Great Escape is playing. You see, it's it's a perfect holiday film. It's If it's not Christmas, then it's it's Easter for The Great Escape. But it is the perfect holiday, uh, holiday movie. Uh, fantastic cast. Richard Attenborough, Donald Pleasance, of course, St- uh, Steve McQueen, yeah. Charles Bronson, The List, David McCallum. The list goes on. Fantastic. It's one of the it's one of them that fits into what we asked a few weeks ago of the films that aren't particularly yeah. festive that kind of remind you of this time of year. And when I when I turned to Christmas Day and I saw Great Escape, I didn't think, oh wow, Great Escape. I thought, oh, of course. I, I know they've got White Christmas on uh, at eleven thirty five on BBC Two, which is a, a Christmas classic. It's a it's an odd film. You yeah. can't get over the charm of how great Bing Crosby is in it. And especially every scene is in Danny Kaye. But it really doesn't take hold of being as being a Christmas film until until the last act, really. Mm. Uh, I, I do like it. The last time I watched it, it felt as though it dragged. But you can't knock it. It is, it is an absolute classic. If you want an absolute classic, though, you just have to tune into BBC Two at 4.40pm and watch Some Like It Hot. Oh, I've seen it so many times. I had to study this. Uh, absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, as absolutely enjoyed it. One of the greatest films of all time. Uh, and then following that is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, again, with Marilyn Monroe. But the big film for BBC One is... Aladdin. Yes. Straight after the King's Speech is finished, Guy Ritchie's live-action adaptation of the Disney animation is one of the only live-action adaptations of Disney products that works. It works a treat. Yes. It's a great family action adventure, and it's fun. It does everything right. Uh, strangely directed by Guy Ritchie, the two that you would never put together, even though Little Bird tells me that he was uh, fired from the picture. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but it has a glitzy, energetic pace and mm. style to it. And Will Smith is fabulous in the role of the genie. So once we've finished our Christmas dinner, we'll be settling around to watch this. We might, while I'm cooking Christmas dinner, be watching Sean the Sheep Farmageddon on BBC One at 1pm <laughs> as well. Just because... If you remember when I spoke about it on the show, I went I w- went in watching this expecting nothing and had quite a fun time with it. So I'm quite looking forward to revisiting it again. It's exactly what you expect from, um, you know, Aardman animation. The wacky, surreal sense of humour perfectly infused into kid-friendly product. Marvellous. So Christmas Day is not too bad. Boxing Day, however, is a strange lineup. I've got a weird, diverse mix for Boxing Day. Now, I've mentioned a few times that I like musicals and my favourite musical of all time is My Fair Lady. And so Channel 5 have delivered for me this Christmas. Bless you, Channel Boxing 5. Day at 11.50, My Fair Lady. Uh, the big film on BBC One is Frozen. So all you Disney princesses out there, 
<laughs> sit and enjoy Frozen for probably if you've got kids the eight millionth time. Uh, if you're fed up of Frozen, switch over to ITV at 3.30 and watch Mitchells versus the Machine, which gets its terrestrial outing. One of our films of the year when it came out. Yes, it's a it's a fun, jokey, family fun film. Uh, Magnificent Seven, the 1960s version, is on BBC Two at 5.30. That's definitely worth tuning into. Again, great cast. Steve McQueen, James Coburn, Charles Bronson, Neil Brenner, Robert Vaughan. Does it get any better than The Magnificent Seven? Directed by... John Sturgis, an absolute classic. If you're still in Disney mode, uh, Mary Poppins is on. The original with Julie Andrews in her most splendid of forms as the prim nanny who transforms the lives of the young people she's in charge of. That's on at 2.25 on BBC One. And if all the Christmas entertainment has kind of got you wanting to murder people, why not finish your Christmas run on BBC Two at 10.15pm with Goodfellas? If you haven't seen the Goodfellas, then why is, is the easiest thing to ask. <laughs> it is an absolute dazzling span of uh, uh, one person's life as they enter into uh, the New York Mafia. It is unflinching. It's dramatic. It's ironic. It, it's probably, I, and you could say this about so many Scorsese films, but it is his classic. Now, normally after Boxing Day, it normally goes reasonably quiet on the TV front up until the New Year's Eve. And it generally does, but the 27th had a few films that stood out for me. It's It's got the marvellous E.T. on ITV1 at 1.30. One of my all-time favourite films. It always reduces me to tears. But it's got BBC One at 9pm, 1917, the war film. Yeah, very good. Excellent. Uh, caught it during lockdown. Uh, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. British Spy, Steven Spielberg's glossy spy drama, Starring yeah. Tom Hanks during the Cold War, which came out at the cinemas and didn't gain a lot of attention. But if you watch it, it's really, really good. It's absolutely splendid. All the best elements of, of Steven Spielberg and a fantastic performance from the great uh, and uh, now probably working as much with Spielberg as, as Tom Hanks. That's Mark Rylance. And then on BBC Two at 3.50, this was a film that was part of my Oscar nominated films that I'd never seen that when I watched it, it was completely different to what I was expecting. And I thoroughly loved Barbara Streisand in Funny Girl. Not one that, that I love, but if, you, if you're if on for a double bill, you could catch Hello Dolly at 1.30 on, on BBC Two and, um, and just sing your heart out for the rest of the day. The early hours of the morning is worth looking at throughout the weeks because there's always some greats just buried away. And Channel 4 at five past midnight have buried the untouchables. Wow, which is, as you know, uh, in my top 20 all-time favourite movies, uh, Brandy Palmer, absolutely an opera of a, of a crime drama and brought Kevin Costner to the big screen in, in making a big splash. I know we're only talking about what's happening on Terrestrial, but I do have to mention uh, the George Harrison Living in the Material World documentary by Martin Scorsese, which is on Sky Arts at 9.25 because it is an absolutely beautiful and painstakingly, uh, it's a love letter basically to the work of George Harrison and Scorsese's work is just is just hypnotic all the way through. I didn't see much stand out on the 28th and 29th. I only got one film for each of them. Heat on BBC Two on the 28th, 10.30pm. We spoke about it on our deep dive this year. I think it's perfectly apt that people should tune in and watch it over Christmas just to see if we were right on our opinions of it on the deep dive. On the 29th, however, we've got the fantastic Disney movie, Zootropolis, or whatever it's called, depending where you are in the world. But it is fantastic. An amazing allegory 
uh, very, very smart, beautifully well done. That's BBC One at one fifty-five. And then again in the early hours of the morning at five past midnight, we've on Channel Four, Jerry Maguire, which uh, is a film that I revisited last year or the year before. And I want to revisit it again because I was just charmed by it all over again. One of those scary movies that gets under your skin on BBC One at 11pm is The Others, which uh, I think is, mm. is much undervalued. I think it was a chilling it's, ghost story. Yeah. And it, uh, as I said, I love a ghost story at Christmas. The 30th. If you're in Sheffield, of course, you've got love for this film. And that's BBC One, 11.30pm, The Full Monty. Because, yeah, you can't live in Sheffield without saying that you love the full Monty. Yeah, except me. I was nearly on his camera now trying to drag him from the seat. (laughs) I mentioned this on the very first radio show. I was brought on to talk about it. And uh, it was my first radio review. And I said how much I disliked it. And there were people (laughs) waiting with with torches outside and a noose. Yeah, it didn't go down well. But no, don't like it. But what I do like is... And you know it's, it's again, my all-time top five favourite films, and that's Superman the Movie on Channel 5 yes. at 1pm. Absolutely yes. iconic. And, and to be honest, there's been some great superhero movies, but this is still the best. Yeah, it's the template for which everything else has tried to reach up to. Just looking at the picture makes me giddy. It just It just brings that nostalgic feel back, and you're thrown back to being like a child watching it for the first time on the big screen, and you know, you, you believed a man could fly. And every time I rewatch this film, I still believe. I completely believe. And yeah. it's why this film is why the character of Superman is my favourite comic book character of all time. It as much as I'm a, more perfect. of a Marvel reader than a DC reader, Superman is my favourite character. Channel 4, on the 30th onwards, are showing us the Indiana Jones films. And it okay. starts on the 30th with Radio, Raiders of the Lost Ark at 8pm. Um, they then have Temple of Doom the following day and then Last Crusade on New Year's Day. And that's all that you need to see. You only need to see the trilogy. You don't need to see anything else. I'm sure that someone did a spin-off film, Crystal Skull or something. It's like, <laughs> it's like, it's like you know, when Asylum make their versions of films, that's what the Crystal Skull is to the Indiana Jones series. So watch that triple bill over this three days and have a great new year. One thing we've not mentioned, which again goes together like brandy butter and a Christmas pudding, is the fact Bond is on at Christmas and Spectre is on ITV1 at 8 o'clock. And uh, Sam Mendes put together just something very different for Bond. And you saw Daniel Craig, I think at that point, become my favourite Bond. Spectre's on there because they build into what they're going to bring us on New Year's Day, which is the terrestrial premiere of No Time to Die. ITV one eight pm on New Year's Day, but New Year's Eve it has quite an interesting mix here. You've got no reason to leave the house. Yeah, Coco on BBC One at one fifteen pm, an absolutely marvelous Pixar film that again reduces you to tears with the emotional core of it. You've got The Searchers on Channel Five at eleven ten am. You've got West Side Story, the nineteen sixty one version on BBC Brilliant. Two at ten past three. You've got Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, BBC Two at one thirty am in the morning. And again, early hours of the morning, buried away, Airplane is on Channel 4 at 2.05. You've got uh, Inside Out, which is uh, which gets me every time, on BBC One at 2.50. Yeah. Uh, fantastic. Just what Pixar at, at its top of its game. When Pixar tap into emotions in such a way, that's when they really do deliver. Uh, yeah, it's New Year's Eve, 
yeah, you've got no reason to leave the house. Yep. Stay so, in the house, gather some friends around, watch films all day, and then celebrate the new year with style. Yeah, at 7.20, you could just sit and relax watching Yesterday from Danny Boyle, uh, which is a rousing musical and a, a love letter to the Fab Four, despite it having Ed Sheeran in. <laughs> if you're a bit hungover on New Year's Day, don't worry, because the first film we're going to point in your direction is Five Past One, Fantastic Mr. Fox on Film 4. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Nothing more to be said. Follow that with the original Planet of the Apes film that, again, we spoke about in Deep Dives. BBC Two, 4.45pm. And as I've already mentioned, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at 5.15, which should finish just in time for you to settle back and watch No Time to Die on ITV1 at 8pm. If you're with your grandma, then you can watch Cleopatra because that will take literally all afternoon and you have no <laughs> reason to move. Starts at 12.45 on BBC Two and finishes at a bum-numbing 4.40. Uh, it reminds me of Christmas Past, having to watch it, and I have watched it all. I've talked about West Side Story being one of my favourite musicals. Mm. That inches only barely above my other favourite musical, which is Singing in the Rain on Channel 5 at one fifteen. Worth it, if nothing else, to see Donald O'Connor run up a wall. Yes, he runs up a wall. Yeah, a, a, a great musical. It's so much fun. And, you know, if you're as passionate about films as we are, its look at the industry itself is one of the biggest appeals of it. So we get to the 2nd of January when we're all getting ready to go back to work Ooh. and everything's returning to normal. But why not relax with... I've got a triple bill of films this day that are worth seeing. You've got Flash Gordon on ITV4 at 12.20 in the afternoon. Gordon's alive, apparently. We love a bit of Flash. William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, which had a deep dive on the show this year. Uh, BBC Two, 10pm. And Shawshank Redemption, BBC One at 10.30pm. Can't fault you on any of those. Um, you could also point out, it's not a great film, but it's it's a, it's worth a watch. That's Death Becomes Her from Robert Zemeckis. And uh, I've never seen it. And I know it's a travesty for a lot of people, but The Goonies is on, on Channel 5 <laughs> at 3.50. Yes, it's a travesty. It's a travesty. I think I've ni- my I think my nib has nearly worn down now for, the, for my films. So overall, between... You know, it's easy to forget the quality of entertainment that the terrestrial channels can put out. And we could have spent much longer also going through the TV specials that they've got on. And, and you know, we've got the TV set, the third season of His Dark Materials landing over the Christmas period. There's loads of good stuff on the terrestrial channels. It's not all about Netflix and Amazon and Disney. No. This, this is why things like the Radio Times are still so important because it's important to see what else is out there that's not on streaming, so you don't miss stuff. And that's our special festive deep dive. Andy, is there anything at the cinema this week? Yeah, so spinning off from what you can watch over Christmas, at the cinemas over Christmas, obviously Avatar's going to still be running, but I Want to Dance with Somebody gets released. It's, it's an odd time to release it, especially in light of Avatar, but... Maybe it's good counter-programming. It, I think it's great count. I think it'll do good business. It's, yeah, it's really good counter-programming. Uh, Corsage gets released this week, and The Pale Blue Eye also gets released. Over at streaming this week, we do have, on Now TV and Sky, The Duke, and Secrets of Dumbledore, and The Bad Guys All Land. One good, one bad, one great. Um, Netflix, we've spoken about it multiple times. I've already reviewed it when it had its limited cinema release. Glass Onion releases. And then the following week, Lee spoke about it, didn't like it. I'm going to have to check it out. White Noise gets released. And on Disney+, Plus, Barbarian has just landed on there. 
And Banshees of Inisherin lands there this weekend as well. So it's a great time on Disney Plus. So literally, there is something for everyone this Christmas. And now it's time for our reviews. So I'm guessing, Andy, there's only one film that we're going to be talking about this week. And uh, it's been 13 years in the making. And that's the sequel to Avatar. Yes, James Cameron is back with Avatar, The Way of Water. The humans are returning. They're hunting us. What's our plan? This is our home. This is our family. This is our fortress. This is where we make our stand. We must protect the people. Let's get it done. Avatar, the way of water. Experience it in 3D. And we are back on the planet of Pandora with Yatiri and Jake putting down their weapons to raise a family after their battle with the Sky People, otherwise known as the humans, otherwise known as the industrialists. But when a new star in heaven heralds the return of the Sky People, soon the Sullies are on the run to escape their oppressors and ally themselves with a sea tribe to make a stand against these new invaders. I've got a feeling Andy and I might be at odds on this one, but I think one thing we will both agree on is how beautiful this film is. And we've been talking a lot of how the Navi are, well, could they be updated? And in the trailers, it didn't look particularly much that they they had. Then I have to say they pulled it off in ways that are absolutely gobsmacking leaps beyond the previous film pushing the technological envelope probably as far as it can go there were times in this film where i just marveled and actually thought how on earth did they do that and there's not many films these days where you try to figure it out but you were looking at it going this is absolutely incredible and it's also uh, it's also one of the most clear films i've ever seen uh, projected at its absolute best uh, and taking it even further than the immersive experience of the first film and, and making it so fully, fully real. I'm going to get away with the words awesome and dazzling before we actually <laughs> move on. I was interested to see what you thought of it visually, because I watched the standard 24 frames per second version. You watched the HFR 48 frames per second version. And we know that HFR has got a bit of a messy history with those terrible Hobbit, Hobbit films. Yeah. But we've always trusted that Cameron will be able to utilize the technology better. So it's good to hear that, like, you know, the detail and the, the intensity of the picture that you were getting presented, you could notice the difference. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you can, uh, there, there are scars on the character's face. I mean, tiny, mm. tiny little scars. There are, you can see the pores. On, on the character's skin, the detail is absolutely, absolutely amazing. I was, I was, um, I was absolutely blown away by by the look of the film. I thought it was as good as it can ever ever be. I, I, neither you or I saw it in in three D, and I've heard it's, I've heard it's absolutely, uh, absolutely unbelievable. Story wise, the first film was about the danger to the whole planet, the hunt for un- unobtainium, threatening the entire Navi culture and the world. But this time. Whilst the first act deals with the aftermath of the first film, an exposition dump tells us of events of the last decade or so. The core of the film is about family. Jake and Nateri's family are forced into hiding, taking refuge in a distant land where there's a different race of Navi who have an affinity with the oceans and they have to integrate within that new society. Hunting them down is uh, Colonel Quaritch, 
who is back. Yes, he's resurrected in the form of an avatar thanks to some tech that for some reason they weren't using during the first film. <laughs> yes, it never got mentioned in the first film that you could basically download your personality. Which you, you, would have, you would have thought that they would have downloaded the experiences and personality of people who've been trained to be avatars at, given the complexity and intensity of the training which would have meant that Jake wasn't needed in the first place. But anyway, let's not retroactively mess up your own franchise, James Cameron, because you clearly didn't think that one through properly. While Quaritch's mission starts off as one to take out Jake as leader of the Navi Resistance, it becomes more of a personal vendetta for the Colonel, who also has familial bonds engaged in there through the guise of his son, who was left behind on the planet because babies can't travel in hyperspace. Now, you've already said it's visually superb, and I fully agree. And my instant response at the end of this was that this is a film that didn't feel like three hours, over three hours of runtime, but neither did it need to be that long because James Cameron spent so much time, like he did with the first one, slowing things down to show off this environment that he's created, to show off all the creatures, the species, the plants, the wildlife. He's fascinated with these environments. And on the big screen, I was caught up in them. And I was loving it on display. But they're also the reasons why I don't watch the first film on home release. Because scenes like that are what slow the film down when you're not in that big screen, big noise environment. On the small screen, this film will feel like five hours rather than three hours ten. But on the big screen, it didn't feel long, but I could see where it was over embellished. But also I could see on more thought afterwards where it was underwritten in order to embellish it. Yes. I mean, this is where it fell apart for me. And and fell apart, it didn't destroy the film, but uh, it, it did have one major issue. So the, the film kicks off with a lot of style. We find out that there's uh, the return of uh, the sky people, the humans, and there is a, a, a sort of ongoing skirmish between the tribes uh, and the humans who are there for uh, different reasons this time, which is all explained throughout the film. And uh, there are some fantastic thrilling sequences. And when Jake and his family, the teenage children, including, strangely enough, Sigourney Weaver playing a 13-year-old. Yep, the mm -hmm. idea of a 70-year-old playing a teenager <laughs> through the magic of visual effects is kind of uh, mind-blowing. Uh, and by the time they get to discover the way of the water, which is the water tribe, the film slows down to a, a, a deadening pace. And at that point, you wait, You are waiting for the action. You have them as, pretty much as in the same film, uh, adapting to their new environment, the same way that Jake did in the first movie, uh, and learning to become part of the tribe, the same way that Jake did in the first movie. But it takes its time. Uh, and at that point, I'm, I'm going on myself, and I was still engaged, but it, it felt overblown because, to be honest, the most interesting characters are Natiri and Jake, not the mm -hmm. kids. Sigourney Weaver's character, her journey through the film, it feels like there's chunks missing from it. Don't tell me there's a director's cut out there. Well, I'm not going to be surprised if we get a 25 minute extra extended version that will explain how she because her character starts to discover things about herself off screen that you just have to accept when she starts doing things. And it's like, but where she learned that? Where have we seen this journey? Because it doesn't focus on her character enough, even though she seems to be integral to the story. It focuses on her brothers more than her. They're the bits that made me feel that it was either underwritten or it's been deliberately trimmed out so they can release an extended version 
at a later date to get some more box office revenue. That might be a cynical thing to think, but let's be honest, he did it with the first film. I gave this four out of five. I thoroughly enjoyed it, but not to the degree that I enjoyed the first one because it was more of the same. It was a lot of repetition. I liked that it was no longer a world-threatening threat. It was a personal revenge story. Quadditch wanting to get his revenge and all about like the bonding of family. And I like the way that Cameron weaves in environmental issues. He weaves in like wailing criticism. Yeah. He weaves in racial issues. Colonialism. He weaves in spiritualism colonialism and the family drama all in there but not done heavy-handed he doesn't force it home he just leaves it that you get to a point of film go oh actually they're tackling race quite well here oh they're tackling this he's smart at doing this but he clearly loves the world that he's created a lot more than the characters that he's created yeah never at any point does he ever stop to say okay i think you've seen too much if he can show you more of the world (laughs) then he's going to show you more of this this amazing visual that he's created. But for me, and seeing it with an audience, that's where they were out. You could see people getting mm-hmm. itchy, see people looking at the phones, checking their watches, despite the great time that Cameron was have spending time with, with this tribe. The audience were losing interest in it. And, and that's the kind of word of mouth that I think could damage the film now if everybody comes out and goes i'm absolutely overawed i thought it was the most beautiful thing i've ever seen or are they going to go it was great and then it it just went to sleep in the middle because all we get is just taking its it taking its so its own sweet time to get to get to a fantastic third act and it is a fantastic third act um, it's when cameron showcases not only what he can do with environments and world building but what he can do with military might And he has a certain design to all of his military tech. And it's echoed again within this. And it jaw-dropping. There's something that... He's got an obsession with people in power suits or big mecha armor things. And I get that obsession because I've got an obsession with the same kind of hardware and militaristic attitudes. And he delivers on the spectacle. The final act is thrilling. It draws you in. It makes you care about every character, including Quaritch, who we're supposed to hate. You actually start to see a different side to him. It gives me hope that the third film can really pick up on the threads that have been left hanging at the end of this one. I just hope that he doesn't go, and the next one is uh, Avatar The Way of Ice, and now there's an ice tribe, and we're going to teach you about the ice tribe natures and spend two hours telling you that. You've done this now. You've reintroduced people to the world of Pandora. I kind of get why he had to reintroduce people in the way he did, because it has been, what? 13 years. Since um, the last film. So he needed to basically give people a a refresher course who might not have seen the first film in quite some time. The next film needs to hit the ground running and it needs to have more story. Yeah, it puts doubt on whether we we will be around unless the figures, the box office figures are absolutely phenomenal. But it it does end well and it ends, it's incredibly thrilling and he brings in all the elements, his love of the underwater uh, and and basically he steals from himself. Uh, He steals from Avatar, Titanic, uh, The Abyss, and uh, even Terminator in places. But you've had to wait to get to that point. And if you have lost interest, then thankfully it's a bit of a, of a, of a wake-up call. But if there's a lot of hard work to try and get you back into the film because you could see you could see the audiences in in the showing that I saw I was with just just starting to starting to lose that connection to it because it was a travelogue. The second film is, almost um this is what i did on my pandora holidays 
uh, and it's as, as as dull in places as watching somebody's photo collection. Uh, it is an absolutely stunning piece of filmmaking um, with a visual effects work that that absolutely blow your brain in, in, in trying to figure out what's real and what isn't real. Uh, and it always proves that, that Cameron has an, a, an amazing eye for detail and will always be the go-to guy for reinventing and, and moving technology further and further. Yeah. Now, if only he'd have been brave enough to lose 40 minutes out of the film, I think you'd have got a, a tight, incredibly powerful sequel to Avatar but at the moment, it feels a lot like overindulgence. I can't disagree with any of the criticisms because I can see them myself, even though I do want to see this a few more times while it's on the big screen. But that's because I know that I will never watch it again on the small screen. So I want to experience the world of Pandora as much times as I can in the environments that I think it deserves to be enjoyed in. So we're not far off, are we? No. If you're a fan of the original Avatar, you'll find something to love in here. If you've never liked the original Avatar, don't even bother. What are you doing? You, should, you don't go to see a sequel for something that you didn't like the first one of. I've never watched Paul Blart Mole Cop 2 because the first one was garbage. So don't put yourself through it if you're not a fan of the original one. I never knew there was a sequel. There is. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So I read a lot of buzz about this film on Shudder. People online were saying really great festive horror film. Definitely worth checking out. And I checked out Christmas, bloody Christmas. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! New animatronic state-of-the-art Santa Claus, featured at our own TW Bonkers, is now the subject of an international recall. Santa? I've mentioned a few times about how at this time of year people elevate mediocrity into something more deserving of what it should get. The festive season sees people suddenly embrace things that any other time of the year they would shirk using the phrase, it's a bit of festive fun or similar to justify the sudden lack of taste. Well, this film being recommended by so many people is clearly an example of that. A store's robot Santa goes haywire. This stuff happens when you use old military robots and starts a killing spree through a town that seems to have bought the world's supply of neon lighting. And only an abhorrently unlikable record store owner can save the town. Much like how Rob Zombie packs his films with unlikable trashy characters, so too does Joe Begos. And within the first 10 minutes of this film, I simply started rooting for the robot Santa to kill everyone as fast as possible. Every character is foul, trashy stereotypes. And there's none who you actually care for buried within the neon glow lit scenes. Yes, neon glow, because everything here is daubed in neon purples, pinks, blues and reds. I'm convinced Begos has shares in a neon strip like company. This is just low budget, trashy horror with some cheap grindhouse-esque effects work that fails to impress. I subbed up to Shudder to check this out after multiple recommendations. I'll not be making that mistake again. Awful film. Avoid it like the plague. I promise I will. So last week I said that I was going to be checking out the new Sky original, The Amazing Maurice, and I was a bit sceptical about it because it didn't look anything from the trailers. Based like on a Terry Pratchett Yep, didn't look anything like it from the trailers. You go from town to town pretending to be a plague of rats. You get mates loads of fat, right? This 
There are new rats in town. Catch them. It's not cool to pick on the little guys. Come to me! Don't worry, a cat always lands on its feet. The amazing Maurice. Better than the trailer suggested, but still nothing more than ideal young age animated fun, this adaptation of the Teddy Pratchett novel follows the cat Maurice and his gang of rodents and the human companion who move from town to town offering services as the town strangely sees a rat infestation that Maurice and his companion will resolve in a Pied Piper kind of manner. However, when they arrive at a town in which the inhabitants appear to have a genuine rat problem, and they meet a bookworm called Melissa, who deduces their con immediately, things take a sharp turn for Maurice and his cohorts. I'll be honest and admit to not expecting much from this. The words, a Sky original, never tend to signify anything good, and the trailer to this one made me wince. Being a big fan of the Pratchett, admittedly written for younger readers' tale, what the trailer suggested seemed far removed from the source material, so it came as quite a surprise how much of the source material survived, And at times, the film absolutely gets the Pratchett elements correct, with the writer's style of twisting traditional folktales into new directions, surviving almost intact. Yes, there are changes to the overall tale to ramp things up a little, but the general essence of the book is retained throughout, even down to the ending, which prompted a smile of joy at the depiction of one particular favourite icon of Discworld. The voice cast are all solid, giving their characters life and personality, and the overall result is a fun, family-friendly outing with a decent, if not particularly stunning, animation style that succeeds mostly in making me want more Discworld animations of a similar ilk, albeit a bit more faithfully adapted next time. And also, there's Netflix's adaptation of Scrooge, A Christmas Carol. Oh, Christmas Eve in London. Who in the world could resist it? Humbug. The cost of that ink will be deducted from your pay. Merry Christmas, Mr. Scrooge. Yes, yes. Ding dong merrily. I have arranged for three visitors to call on you before morning. Oh, hello. You can't change the past, but you can learn from it. Are you ready to live your life now? In the present. (laughs) This is far more agreeable than what your predecessors had me endure. (laughs) So what's next, friend? Netflix's adaptation of the famous tale adds some musical moments, but in general simply retells the novel in the traditional manner. The story is so well known by now, and it's no surprise to find yet another adaptation make the screens. Ebenezer Scrooge is set to be visited by three ghosts over the night to warn him of his bad path he follows and hopefully redeem him before the chains that bind drag him down. You know the story by now, and this new adaptation sticks solidly to it. Doing everything well in regard to the adaptation, the animation captures the period of the setting well, the voice cast all deliver strong performances, and the tale sticks to the classic tale. But this is all undone by the unnecessary inclusion of musical numbers that are neither wanted nor memorable. As far as adaptations of the Dickens classic go, it certainly isn't the worst, but neither is it amongst the best. Sitting somewhere in the midpoint, it's not more than an entertaining bit of diverting fluff to pass the time, 
and it won't leave any lasting impression on audiences. I remember you reviewing this film a couple of weeks ago and you said the best thing about going into it is not to know anything. Uh, and boy, were you right. Finally caught <laughs> up with Barbarian as it landed on Disney+. Plus. Andy, and Andy was right. The best experience for this is with as little foreknowledge as possible. From writer-director Zach Greger, this is a story of Tess who, visiting Detroit for a job interview, she arrives at an Airbnb only to find it double booked by a mysterious tenant Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård, who generously lets her in and says that she can stay the night. And this awkward scenario soon escalates into, well, you never saw that coming. And that's the most I can tell you <laughs> yep. about it. It is best to be seen because Krieger maintains an absolutely gripping intensity, piling up a ton of surprises, cranking up the fear, the aesthetics, the absurdities, <laughs> the odd humour that goes with it and the social commentary. This is an intense, at times disturbing movie, which is also at times downright funny. It's wild, it's unpredictable, it's crazy, it's claustrophobic, it's intense, and that's the best thing I can say about it. Thoroughly enjoyed Barbarian. Glad you enjoyed it. and You can see why it was a big recommendation for me to just try and get it watched before someone spoils it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going knowing nothing. And Talking about knowing nothing, I think we're done. I think we're wrapped for the week. We're wrapped for the year. Our Christmas wrapping is done now. It's been a heck of a year. <laughs> oh, that was nice. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> and as ever, we've got to leave you with our neat things. It's stuff that we've enjoyed, stuff that we've loved, whether it be a film, a meal, concert, a book, a game. doesn't matter as long as it's neat to us. And Andy, uh, what's your neat thing? I mentioned it last week because it had landed on BritBox. Yes, I know I've been playing Last of Us Part 2 so much over my week off, but in between playing that, I've been watching I, Claudius. Oh, what a brilliant series. This was a series that I watched when I was, I must have been about 11, when it got re-shown on the BBC. And then I read the, the Graves novels about three or four years later, and then I've never gone back to it, but I've always had that memory of it being so so well done. But it's always been one of those shows that I've been worried about revisiting in case it doesn't live up to what my nostalgic childhood memory was. But I'm so pleased to report that not only does it live up to it, it exceeds it. It is such a fantastic production. It is possibly one of the best productions that the BBC have ever put out of anything historical epics. And you can't get more epic than looking at like the basically decline of the Roman Empire with a wealth. Of, I mean, basically the who's who of British thespians involved in it. Derek Jacobi as Claudius himself is absolutely marvellous. Brian Blessed as Augustus, who doesn't play it as bombastic as you'd expect from Brian Blessed. He plays him like a normal person and it's everyone else who elevates into godhood status. Sean Phillips, John Hurt, Sheila White, Patrick Stewart, Patricia Quinn, Christopher Biggins, George Baker, John Rhys-Davis, Peter Bowles, the list of names in this is huge and everyone is magnificent in it. Um, I've got about three more episodes left to watch and I have enjoyed working through these again. And I can only give thanks to BritBox for finally, finally putting them on the service so that the world can appreciate them. I keep recommending BritBox to people. I recommend it for different shows, left, right and centre. This is the show to get BritBox for. This is the thing to at least spend a one month subscription on and just immerse yourself into the, the fall of the Roman Empire with such a great wealth of names put together in such a polished product. Uh, well, my neat thing is is twofold. One that I think you will share with me, Andy. But first, 
as we've just said in the reviews, we both saw Avatar Way of the Water, not together. Uh, I went and I took the child and I have never taken the child to the cinema just because I, at home, if we try and watch something, he, he can't sit mm. still and it would drive me crazy. But he promised he really wanted to see Avatar and he promised me he would he would stay still. And he, I was so proud of him. He sat and he absorbed a three hour plus movie for, for a kid who's nine. It was absolutely amazing. But it just made me think about how I got into going to the cinema, which was, was my dad taking me to see 2001 A Space Odyssey. And and I sat there in awe, and it changed my life. I'd been to the cinema from from a, such a young age. I saw all the Disney movies, but I think that was the moment for me that got me into into this beloved temple of, of movies that, that we talk about weekly. Uh, and it was such a fantastic thing to be able to share that. And uh, and it was I was quite touched, and it, it just took me back to my love of cinema and how uh, that was formed. And I don't think it will be the last time that I'll, I'll take him to the cinema but that's my part one uh my part two is i'm gonna get a bit schmaltzy because my neat thing is just doing this show over the last year and, and, and previous years but we've gone on to bigger and better things so we've got the radio show we've got uh the podcast uh we can feel the traction that the show's gaining uh, and it's taking its damn time longer than uh way of the water to get to where it's going but we know that it's paying off and we know that we've got some great listeners from across the world. Uh, we know that we're doing very well with the show. There's a ton of things we'd love to do. So please spread the word. But it's an absolute joy. And uh, to finish off uh, 2022 by saying it's been a fantastic film file year. And I couldn't do it without you, Andy, because you are the heart of this show. Me. I'm the good-looking outer exterior, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you are the heart, and uh, it's an absolute joy, uh, and it's become uh, it's become just a big part of of both of our lives. Yeah, like I said before, is like this started off as something just before COVID hit, and then during lockdown, this became our weekly connection with the outside world, talking to each other. It was someone outside our own households who we could just like geek out with, and that's when the the show started to grow into what it is now. I have as much fun editing as I do just talking for this couple of hours that we do each week. Because during the edit, I start to pick up on so many more things that have been said whilst I was talking and Lee like, try, like, tries to just interject and says something. But he'll say something that I didn't pick up on the first time and it'll just make me chuckle when I hear it back. They make the outtakes. The outtakes that have become a feature over the past few months have all come from the fun that I'm having when I'm editing it. I want to share those mistakes i want to share that fun and that banter that we're having behind the scenes to let you know that we're not just doing this for any cynical reasons we're doing this because we love it we so yeah i agree with you entirely this yeah, it's a neat thing being a part of this and having fun with this each week so have yourself a fantastic christmas we'll be back in the new year We've got a couple of uh, additional bonus episodes over the next couple of weeks have a great Christmas. Have a great Christmas, Andy. Have a marvellous Merry New Year. And to everybody, to me, you are perfect. Day Watch and Night Watch. Uh, the Timur Be Beckman Betov. I'll try that again. The Timur Beckman Betov films. Um, I, I remember looking at the film. Is that the, the Timur Beckman Betov but... film? Yeah, that's the ones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's going in the edit. <clears throat> Dennis Wheatley fan, so I imagine. Stop <laughs> microphone falls. Lee's getting all rock and roll and trashing oh, his microphone at this point in time. Like and if you want to become part of a year-long tribute to 
whatever it is the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> and if you want to become part, leave a like. Okay. I've just, I've just been going through my windows and closing things down, and I've just I've just almost set myself chuckling again with uh, your buzz your hole. I'm in place. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I was driving. <laughs> Buzz your hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sounds like sounds Alan Partridge. <laughs> Buzz your hole. <laughs> it's your um, it's your t shirt design for next year. <laughs> Buzz your hole. I'm in place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the new new movie from David Lynch. <laughs> it's going to be the title of this week's episode. Buzz your hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.